Good morning. It's um, been quite a week, hasn't it? We've been plunged back into uh, a lockdown. We've had the Euros going on, and supporters of England have to figure out how to feel where their team is playing sort of sensible, successful football. Uh, things are happening at Wimbledon. The Tour de France has turned out, turned out to be some kind of barroom brawl. And um, if we thought we couldn't bear any more excitement, Woolworths then went and did their sale this week. I mean, what a week. Uh, and sort of in the background to all of that, Durban, I think, has probably had its most beautiful week of 2021, hasn't it? This has been the most beautiful week of the year so far uh, in the place in the world that does winters the best already. Uh, and so I hope I'm finding you in good spirits this morning, full of beans. But if you are sort of stumbling into church this morning, that's totally fine. If you've just woken up and you're still in your pajamas, because once again, you get to do church in your pajamas, then congratulations, I'm jealous. Um, my name is Paul, uh, and in the context of this wonderful, crazy, confusing week, uh, we are talking about the plan, the purpose, the will of God for your life. And let's just kind of call it, that's a strange conversation to be having. To be talking about anybody's will for your life, other than your own, is a bit of an unnatural thing to do. When my mom, or my in-laws, or even my boss, or particularly when sort of marketers and peer pressure and other forces outside myself, when I hear they have a will for my life, I don't know about you, maybe it's just because I'm a rebel, but my sort of instinctive reaction is to go, well, you can take your will and apply it to yourself or stick it somewhere else. I want to be in charge of my own life. And so this whole sermon series is based on the idea that many people ask the question, well, what is God's will for my life? And I think many people do ask that question, but let's just call it. When we're asking, what is the will of God for my life? I think most of the time, most of us are actually asking for the little 10-second skip-forward button like you have on a podcast or on Netflix that allows you to see how the next decision is going to play out. What we're actually asking for when we're asking about the will of God for our lives, I think, is we're asking, well, what's going to work out best here? Could God just give me the cheat code? Could God just allow me to flick to the end of the novel quickly? Because uh, I'd like to know what's going to work out best for me. What we're not actually asking a lot of the time is what is going to work out best for God? What is God's plan here? If I'm not going to get my way, I want to have his way in my life, then, well, that's really what you should be asking, I suppose, when you say the words, well, what is God's will for my life? But I'm with you. I, I don't always find that an instinctive or easy question to ask because we are designed, God designed you this way. We're designed to want to be free. We're designed for some kind of independence. We're designed to feel like we can determine our own course. And so this sermon series is actually based on a pretty radical idea a pretty countercultural idea, a pretty brave, mad idea that you might have if you are brave enough, if you are out there enough. It's to go, well, I actually do want someone else's will in my life, not my own. There's someone I trust so much who I believe has my best interests at heart. But more than that, because, I mean, my mom has my best interests at heart, but I don't want her to have a will for my life, or if she has one then she needs to have the wisdom to keep it to herself some of the times, which my mom, because she's very clever, does uh, and is watching this stream. Um, however, we're not only saying we trust God's intentions for us enough that we're prepared to let his will dominate. We actually are being so crazy as to say we also believe in his ability, not just his intentions, but his wisdom and his knowledge that he can be trusted to not only want good things for us or have some kind of good feelings towards us, but he actually knows better than you, 
what would be best for your life? And so in that context or with that as the sort of backdrop, we ask this question when we look at who we should marry or what work we should do or whether we should or shouldn't take that business risk or buy that car or study that course or, okay, God, you, I don't just want the cheat code. I don't just want to press 10 seconds ahead on the story to figure out if this goes well or badly for me. I actually want to know. I'm actually desperately longing to know, what do you want me to do? And guys, isn't it just, I mean, just pause for a second. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe does actually have an answer to that question? That he is interested enough in you that this whole sermon series is even worth doing? He's got a lot of other stuff going on, you might say. The fact that he has a a hope for your life, an intention for your life, that he designed you on purpose for a purpose, those are incredible ideas. And so we're, I hope, humbly and genuinely asking the question, okay, God, how did you want this to go when you designed me? What did you put me on this planet for at this moment in this place? What's your will for my life? And we're going to study two verses in Romans that end with the phrase, and if you do these things, you will be able to prove, you'll be able to test and know what the will of God is for your life. And so the inverse then is if we choose to ignore this passage, you can't know or you can't have access to the will of God for your life. Okay? So this is one of those texts that we should really zone in on. Because Paul, the author, is writing to the church in Rome and to the church throughout time saying, get these things in your mind and you will be able to test and know. You will be able to prove the will of God in your life. Ignore them, avoid them, and you can't. So let's have a look at what Paul has to say to the Romans. This is uh, Romans chapter 12, the very first verse of Romans chapter 12. And we've gone for the slightly more old school translation here because I want you to feel Paul's emotion and also because there's a a quite important translation issue. This is the best translation for this verse. I'll explain why in a moment. But it starts with, I beseech you. So that's quite memorable, right? Paul's feeling quite emotional. The feels are going. Uh, He's just been, he's kind of broken into song just verses before this. He's been talking, for context, about the amazing mercies of God, the, the way that you can now be justified by faith, that this brand new, incredible, mysterious idea has been revealed. And in fact, God is so good and so smart that he's found a way to save those of us who weren't part of his people, who weren't part of ancient Israel. And in that process, Israel has fallen into disobedience, but don't worry, God has it all under control. Our salvation is going to be good news for them in the long run too, and he's going to get his people back as well. And Paul's going, oh my goodness, this plan's incredible. You can't write this stuff. This plan is beautiful. It satisfies our souls. God is so good. He honestly breaks into song. If you can imagine this sort of bandy-legged, short, like semi-ugly-looking apostle, because we have reason to think that Paul looked that way with kind of squinty eyes. So starting to feel slightly close to home. But anyway, um, and, and he now sort of breaks into song going, well, who has actually ever known the mind of God? Who can get a grip on his plans and his knowledge? He's so wise. Who's ever given him counsel? Like, he's so smart. Who's ever lent to God or given to God and he owes them? Like, well, there's, there's no way for us to pay him back. He's just so incredible. And then he says, I beseech you, friends, brothers. He's like grabbing us by the collar, saying, I, I'm desperate for you to get this idea. You, therefore, by the mercies of God, 
Oh, wait, let me read it properly because I'm getting confused with this old English. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's the interesting line, reasonable service. If you were to quickly grab your Bible, and I suspect you're not reading it out of this translation, it will probably say your spiritual act of worship, that you should present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. I've mostly read it that way. And usually just put that in the box of strange Bible verses that I don't fully understand. Be careful not to put too many things in that box because you often miss out on the really cool stuff. As I started looking at this passage, I thought, well, what is a spiritual act of worship? I'm not sure if I fully understand what that concept is. How is spiritual worship different to all worship? Surely worship just is spiritual. So I had a quick look. And you don't have to be a genius to do this. You could just read any commentary or go onto uh, your Bible app on your phone and try to figure out the, the lexicon, the original word used. And that word that's translated in your Bible, probably spiritual, or in the older versions as reasonable, it's a really interesting word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Peter uses it once. Paul uses it here. And it's from the same root as our word logical. So Paul's saying in this moment, your logical act of service, your, the rational response to this incredible stuff God has done is to live like some kind of living sacrifice. So why is it not always translated that way? Well, because the one other time it gets used, Peter uses it, and the context makes it pretty clear he's talking about spiritual. So most people, for the sake of consistency, translate it as spiritual. You, I'm geeking out, I know, but you couldn't use the word logical in the place that Peter uses the same word. But in this instance, it certainly seems to make a lot more sense that Paul says, and I mean, we obviously just don't fully understand the way Peter and Paul were using this specific word. But in this context, friends, here's what Paul's saying. There is no way that you could pay God back for how good he's been, how, how incredible he is. There is no proportional response that you or I could make to how amazing God's rescue plan throughout our species is. As we see it starting to play out, as we understand a little bit more, the only response is even for some battle-hardened apostle like Paul to break into songs, to just kind of lose you're cool. And so Paul says, look, you can't pay him back. You can't even really wrap your head around just how good he has been to you, just how glorious he is, just how wise and beautiful and amazing. So the only rational response, the only reasonable thing that you could do is to live your life like a living sacrifice. That's a weird thing to say. Jews would have understood that throughout their interactions with God, there was this recognition that he's very holy and they're not, and so something has to pay a price to be in his presence. So you're hopefully probably familiar with the sort of sacrificial system. If not, you'll, all you need to know for now is that some serious price needed to be paid in order for unholy people to be in the presence of a holy God. Paul says, because there's nothing you can give back to God that pays him back for how good he's been, the only thing left is for you to consider yourself like one of those little lambs or pigeons or something that had been killed in order to be in the presence of God. He's saying, just, just consider yourself something that's, that's died, but now you're actually still alive. And so you're, you're going, well, God, you have rights over my whole life. You have rights over every part of me. 
If you wanted to take my life, that would still not be enough to pay you back for how much you've done for me. If you want to be in charge of every single part of my life, it's the least I can do. I'm going to give you my whole life as a living sacrifice. I'm going to live as though I'm on borrowed time. I'm going to live at someone else's generosity, God's generosity. But now you're holy. That's what's so amazing about what Paul is saying. You get to live like a, like a sacrifice, but you're holy. And you're pleasing to God. You, if you've put your faith in Jesus, are holy and pleasing to God. When you offer your life back to God, yes, on the one hand, it couldn't possibly compare to what he's given you. But on the other hand, when you give your life back to God, you're giving him something he actually wants. You have the ability to please God. That's amazing. You, despite all the stuff that's faulty about you, have been transformed somehow so that when you give your life back to God, it's not just some kind of runner-up, you know, prize for competing. It's not some, like, bogey. It's, you're actually giving God something very wonderful. You are very wonderful. God has made you holy so that when you give yourself back to him, it pleases him. God has made you beautiful and glorious and strong and wise and funny and all the unique things that he's made you so that when you recognize how wide and deep and high and beyond reckoning his goodness is, and you go, well, God, I only reasonable thing for me to do is give you my whole life. And even that's not enough. You are giving him something very great, something that can please him. And that is your reasonable response. Now, this is verse one of two verses that, as I mentioned, end with, and if you do this, you'll know the will of God in your life. So let's look at the next verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. Another way to say that you may test and know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in a moment, we're gonna try and get our heads around, well, what, what does conforming to this world mean? I've been puzzling about that for a while now because if I could know what conforming to the world means, then I could know what it is I'm supposed to not do uh, because that's what Paul's saying. Don't be conformed to the world, but instead do this other thing, and then you'll be able to know what God's plan is for your life. Point one, make your life worship, essentially. Your reasonable act of worship, your reasonable act of service is to make your life about God. Then the second thing is, and now don't be like the world. Be something different. So I want to try and figure out what not to be conformed to. But just before we do that, let's just kind of get clear on what worship really is. What's the apostle just told us to do? Because most of us, I think, would think worship is just singing a song or just going through some sort of ritual motions. But any uh, life coach, any performance coach, anyone who um, wants to make a meaningful-looking text-only post on Instagram that gets lots of likes will say, things like this. They'll say, well, I think this is quite smart anyway, uh, and if you want to make a text-only post that people like, you can use this one for free. But um, this, is a, th this is a thing that people might say. They say, the enemy of the great is not the bad, but the good. Okay, what do I mean? The enemy of, of great, the thing that stops you doing something great is not bad stuff, but it's good enough. Good enough is what stops us doing great. So I've put some things that are good on the stage here. And they are 
they're, they're not bad. Let's be honest. Your family is not evil, despite what you may have heard me and others say about their children from time to time. They're not evil. My family is a good thing that's worthy of my attention. Entertainment more often can be unhelpful, but you were designed to run on stories. You're designed to have your imagination get sparked and for things to need to mean something to you. God is a storyteller. It's okay. It's not a bad thing. Work and the ability to earn an income is certainly not evil. There's nothing more spiritual about being poor. There's nothing more spiritual about floating along, asking other people to pay your way. You were designed to do meaningful stuff. And so when we are in that tricky situation where you're not able to earn an income, it is very hard. Let's not pretend it isn't. You were designed, it's a good thing. So is, well, materialism is an ism, so right, it must be bad. Except that Alec Verikandi has put a Land Rover on there, and that's very good. That's just the end of the conversation. But um, you... The fact that you're able to recognize value in the world, when, when God first puts Adam in the garden and he says, tend it and make it better, let's not just immediately assume that all your desires for, for good things are automatically evil. If that's what the church ever says, then like, it's quite hard to live up to that. The same or status, it's tricky. Like Your reputation is part of your witness to the world. It's unreasonable to expect that you're just going to not care. And, and you, you do want to know who it is you're supposed to love and be loved by. These are not necessarily bad things. Okay, here's what worship is. If worship's not just a song, if Paul is saying your reasonable response to the incredible goodness of God is to live like a living sacrifice. And this is part one of the two-part thing that you require to do if you're going to know what the will of God is in your life. Then here's my big First point, probably the only point that's really worth remembering out of this sermon. You're not going to know the will of God for your life if you're not going to make your life about worshiping God. You are not going to know the will of God for your life in terms of what work you must do unless you're prepared to make your life about worshiping God. So what I'm saying is, if I want to know the answer to God, where should I work? And this is the space in which I have laid my life down to God, I've made my life about worship. If I want to know the answer to what I should do and I see some great opportunity or I allow my heart to become so attached to the work that I do that I'm prepared to leave the place of worship and go off searching for it, then no matter how good the job you find, if it's not living in there, it's not the will of God for your life. If it stops you worshiping God, it's not the will of God for your life. If I make worshiping God the point, if, I like, if I'm like a living sacrifice, if I go, I don't even have the right to live based on how incredible God is. And I sit in this place, then I can have him add my work to me and it can actually be the will of God for my life. I don't know if this metaphor is making sense. Let's say this relationships thing. Many of us drift out here, particularly in our late teens, early 20s, and we camp out here and we worship this idea. And then we spiritualize it by saying, well, he or she must be man of God as well or a woman after God's heart and we're gonna pray a lot together. We're gonna read the Bible a lot together. You can spiritualize these things, but essentially, if I'm still worshiping it, if this has become some kind of idol in my life, if this has become the thing I've put my faith in to satisfy me, if I've gone, yeah, God, you can have the rest of my life, but I'm holding this thing tightly. If I've come out of the space where I'm worshiping God, it is simply not possible that I'm going to find the will of God for my life. You may, by some dumb luck, end up marrying someone wonderful, 
but you won't be able to give God glory for that decision. However, if I make my life about worshiping God and I live in here and I trust him with all the other, other stuff, at some point, if God chooses to add this to me, but it doesn't impact my ability to live a life of worship, you found the will of God for your life. Is this starting to make sense? I might be wondering about what I should do for my family. I want to care for them. I want to provide for them. You can spiritualize this very good thing, but the enemy of the great is the good. And if I make my life about worshiping this idea, and I'm going to turn these children into the people I kind of wished I had been when I was younger, and I live my life through them, and I obsess about providing for them and protecting them, and and I allow this to stop me worshiping the one true God, I have drifted out of the will of God for my life. You will only know the will of God for your life if you're prepared to make your life about worship, which means even your family is less important than worshiping God. Because he can actually be trusted with them more than you can anyway. He's better at protecting them and providing for them than you are anyway. He's better at nurturing them into the people he designed them to be than you are anyway. And so if I can live my life first and foremost to worship God, then I can trust that all these other things will be added unto me, like Jesus said. If I'm not prepared to make my life about worshiping God, there's no way I can know the will of God for my life. This is what worship looks like. Worship is not a song that is sung. Worship is a life lived on borrowed time. Worship is a life lived at the mercy of God, literally the mercy. God, I owe you everything. There's nothing I could do to pay you back. And so that car I may or may want or may not want to buy, that job I may or may not want to do, that person I may or may not want to marry, these children I may or may not want to strangle or, or spoil at any given moment, all of these things are secondary to the most important thing about me, which is that I am a worshiper of the one true God. And I have given my life back to him as a holy sacrifice. That's high, that's noble, that's not easy to live up to. But Paul's saying that's the only reasonable thing you can do in response to his mercy. And that is the way you can know the will of God for your life. It's in that box somewhere. And if you're prepared to go outside of that box in order to try and get something, don't try to pretend that's God's will for your life. That's just you doing you, worshiping something else. The second verse says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what God's will is, the good, pleasing, perfect will of God. Before we finish and answer the question, so what is being conformed to the world and what is not? What is the world really about? Isn't it cool that God's hope always is that when he gives you an instruction, he actually gives you the means to love following it? His hope always, his desire always, is that when he tells you to do something, he then sneaks in some new wiring into you, some new way of thinking, so that it becomes the very thing you want to do. If anyone tries to tell you that Christianity is about submitting to ugly ideas or sort of onerous instructions, then they're selling you short. Christianity is about submitting to instructions, but they're glorious ones, and they're ones that you are supposed to end up actually wanting. God wants to rewire you so you, that you desire him and desire to serve him. And so the expectation is that it's possible that you can end up finding the will of God for your life more desirable, more pleasing than your own will for your life. More desirable, more pleasing than the marketing might of all of Unilever and Tiger Brands and Woolworths and everyone combined who are trying to get you to be pleased with their will for your life because they absolutely have a will for your life. He wants to rewire you in such a way that you find his will for your life more desirable than theirs. 
So don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead, by the renewing of your mind, think like Jesus. Okay, so let's just ask Jesus quickly. <laughs> let's just go to a comment he made for, I think, a great insight into the difference between the way the world thinks and the way worshipers should think, the way the world thinks and the way you and I are invited to think if we're going to find God's will for our life and find it pleasing. Jesus in Luke 9 says to a bunch of disciples, look, if you want to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? I really don't pretend to understand all of what Jesus is saying because he's given us a back door into this incredible mystery. But it does seem to me like he's saying that your default position, the default position of this world, is to try to save your own life. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of suffering. We're afraid of pain in any form. We're afraid of lack. We're afraid to struggle. And so we're making every decision we can to save, safeguard, protect, make comfortable our lives. And God is saying, okay, if you want to do a good job of protecting your own comfort and joy, if you want to do a good job of protecting your own life, if you want to do the best possible job, if you want to do the reasonable thing, like Paul would go on to say in Romans 12, then as ridiculous as this may sound, you need to be prepared to let go of all these things you're trying to protect and hold on to and just trust me with them. I think that's the fundamental shift that Paul's telling us to make. No longer be conformed to the pattern of this world who, through whatever tactics they can employ, are trying to protect their lives and hang on to what the, good, the good that they've been able to grab for their lives. Just let it go. What does that actually mean today for you to just let go of the things that you've been trying to control or protect or look after, and go, God, I'm going to trust you with those things. I'm going to grab hold of you. Because if I'm prepared to lose my life for your sake, I will absolutely find it. If I'm prepared to, to let go of these things I long for and start to really long for you like my soul wants to, you will take care of that other stuff anyway. If I don't do that, if I cling on to the things this world offers me, if I cling on to the things I've been able to control, what we know is that it's like the mirage in the desert that disappears when you get there. In closing, the, some of you, I suppose, will have had opportunities to go to funerals. I mean, they're, they're hard, but often they're really beautiful. Uh, I've been to many, done some. You know, there's this thing that happens when you get this sudden perspective of, at the end of my life, what am I going to look back and and have people say about my life. Funerals give this amazing perspective because often, especially if it's someone who's lived their life really well, it's really inspiring. You suddenly get this picture that they're not talking about the Netflix shows they chose to watch, the podcast they subscribed to, the car they chose to buy, any of those other things. The stuff that's really worth celebrating at a funeral are all the moments when we didn't go out and try and worship something else, but where we just worship God, where we just became who he designed us to become, and he, we allowed him to add those other things to us. Coldplay released a song recently talking about like, you know, when all the skeletons got together to discuss the rights and wrongs of life. If you could somehow press the 10-second fast-forward button really long enough to get to the end of your life, and you saw what it is that you're going to look back on and be satisfied by, those 
disappearing mirages of materialism or status at work or whatever else it is that you're chasing after or the things you're desperately trying to protect and preserve. I put it to you that with the benefit of that perspective, you would suddenly see all that stuff for what it is. Good things, not great things. Good things, but only great when they are added by the great God into a life of worship. When you make those things the point, they disappear just as you get to them. They don't satisfy. And so Justy's prepared a song for us about this exact idea. Jesus, I'm not going to use you as a means to the ends that I had anyway. I'm not going to use you as a way to get the other things I always wanted. God, I'm certainly not going to ask you to just bless a life that I'm actually living for myself. I want to somehow make my life about you. I want to somehow stop being conformed to the pattern of this world and actually live my life intending to be satisfied by you. I hope you enjoy this song. God bless you. Take me back to where we 
Yeah.